This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Welcome to the Dark City, you guys. <laughs> Episode, that is. That's right. We watched the movie Dark City, written and directed by Alex Proyas, who did The the Crow and mm-hmm. your favorite movie, iRobot. Oh, my favorite movie of all. <laughs> it well, was yeah. co-written by David S. Goyer, who wrote tons of great stuff, some bad stuff. He wrote The Dark Knight and uh-huh. a ton of other like giant movies, yeah. Some many of which are considered to be bad. Right. But <laughs> should we take a listen to the trailer? Let's do it. It's difficult to use the trailer because there's no dialogue there's whatsoever. Just a literally, lot of and like titles yeah. are flashing at you, like in Man a world has no past, yeah. no future. <laughs> Darkness falls soon. Yeah, where where did this movie come from? Like, how is this one that kind of like slipped through the cracks for me? I don't know. I wound up, I think I saw it because I used to just go to the home vision video down the street from me growing (laughs) up and I would be like, oh, that looks interesting. And then I wound up seeing this and being like, whoa, that's a really interesting (laughs) side of the times. No, this is like one of those perfect movies that you're like, oh, swing by Blockbuster after school on Friday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, It's in the era of like, it came out before The Matrix, but it's in that kind of feel of like, the world isn't what you think it is. Absolutely. A lot of interesting ideas. What is the premise of this movie? Is there a way you could describe this well it is hard to kind of explain mm-hmm. the the basic thing is they're all living on this city that's in space that's just like a disc that this city lives on right. and it's basically a zoo that these aliens are experimenting on human beings mm-hmm. by injecting memories into their brains and then seeing how they live right there's some element of this that they don't totally explain about how the aliens need to understand how we live for them to continue living right and there's this suggestion because like a lot all of the set pieces and the costuming and stuff is like very late 30s early 40s but it right. kind of exists in this like non-history. Yeah, they which... definitely read about like the architecture in it yeah. is like taken so that if you look at like the bottom of a of a building, it's from one city's architecture, right. and then the top of it looks like it's so it's like this amalgamation of all human thoughts right. and experiences into one city. Exactly, but then also Kiefer Sutherland, he's dressed like a very like 1930s doctor, mm-hmm, and it, mm-hmm. but it just basically suggests that the aliens have been fucking with our memories right. and like you know it's kind of this ju- because it exists in this like no man's land of generation and, and the aliens have this ability with their mind to create massive buildings mm-hmm. out of nothing or and like so they are with their mind changing the city around at night while everybody's asleep injecting mm-hmm. new memories and so these people think that they're these new lives when they wake up okay. and then the other thing about it is that there's no sun because they're like in s- d- deep space and so mm-hmm. there's no the sun never comes up and one of the elements of this is that the main character is constantly being like when's the last time you remember doing anything when the sun was up totally and yeah that people are like, dark y'all. No, I don't know yeah. no this movie is like crazy it's off the walls but it's also super interesting visually I thought it was dope 
dope. Visually, especially for the time, because yeah. I, I think they built a lot of these sets and they have them like literally moving around on these giant stages yeah. and it just, it looks cool. I read that Alex Proyas got the idea for like the buildings changing and growing while the crew was moving set pieces around while filming The Crow. Oh, interesting. And then later some set pieces were later sold to the production of The Matrix. Oh. So like it kind of makes sense that they're, because like the whole cool. time I was like, yeah, it's a very Crow-like, yeah, just the yeah. dark dark city yep. of it. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> I don't know if you remember at the very beginning, but there's that like crazy narration by Kiefer Sutherland's yeah, character. Yeah, yeah. I read that New Line Cinema actually forced Proyas to include that opening narration, mm -hmm. which he thought was unnecessary because it like gives away all these plot twists and shit. Right. I think that there's even stories of like... I want to say it's Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, where mm -hmm. like they were like, we have to do the like he did, oh, wanted some right, like music list section, and like okay. there's a bunch of stuff where through history, great directors, whether it's Stanley Kubrick explaining yeah. like I don't want to explain this stuff, right. and the the people going like, well, I want people to understand what they're seeing. Yeah, people need to know what's <laughs> up. It's too abstract. Yeah, Kiefer Sutherland's character in this, his name is Daniel Schreiber. First, we just need to. <laughs> He's fucking There's a ridiculous. lot of craziness in this movie. Yeah. He, I, I wrote down Igor Sutherland because, like, the whole yeah. time he kind of has this like, yes, <laughs> like kind of like, oh, mm, hey, this He's is always how I am. breathing yeah. like and this, this and talking, and, and I, it's weird. I love Kiefer. I love it, but I was just, and I'm sure you know he was directed to be kind of whatever because I, I read that his character is actually based off of a, a guy named Daniel Schreiber. That's the name of a German judge who later wrote a book called Memoirs of My Nervous Illness, and it was originally published in 1903, but he wrote it. It while he was institutionalized for schizophrenia in approximately oh. like 1884 or something. Now, to Schreiber, the world had been revealed to him as a, quote, enormous architecture of nerves dominated by a predatory god. Mm. And so his personal crisis was what he called a crisis in God's realm, which is one that transformed the rest of humanity into a race of phantasms. Hmm. Now, according to Google Books, Schreiber, quote, considered himself chosen to redeem the world and to restore it to the lost state of blessedness. This, however, he could only do by first being transformed from a man into a woman okay dot 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 so I was already like whoa <laughs> but what's crazy is like a lot of the theories that both Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung have talked about are like kind of taken or at least influenced by his memoirs thing and then of course Dark City has these quote unquote fleetingly improvised men which are you know as featured in that book too so like you know the mm, like the the Mr. Alien, Hand the, right. like the main guy who played by Riff Raff from Rocky Horror Picture Show and I know you're you're not a fan of that or you haven't seen that I movie, haven't seen but. it don't 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 yeah, say I'm not, not, a not, fan. not a fan. I, I just, I'm sure he'll be a fan once it. he sees it, but yeah. it's pretty egregious that he hasn't seen it. Let's be clear about that. No, but because I remember seeing, I was like, is that, that's definitely Riff Raff. And he, but yeah, he was like a creepy, like thin, thin man. With, yeah. Like, They're all kind hair. of slender men. Yeah, exactly. Feel. Ugh. The aliens. Yeah, Jennifer Connelly, they had her like melodramatic as fuck, they though. Did. I remember that too. She's like the crooning, just like, oh, I'm but Jessica Rabbiting around. They do explain that, like, with Kiefer Sutherland, he's a man who they removed all of his memories right. of, of like removing his memories. Mm -hmm. So he's like this non person. And if you also, you can kind of forgive elements of like how over the top and caricature ish like Jennifer Connelly is because her memories of who she is have been implanted by the aliens who don't totally understand humanity. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I it, but it's also like as if that's the only movie, certainly from that time, no. where like the women are like cartoonishly no, like, no, I'm, I'm not. Damsel in yeah, uh, but, definitely. Yeah, this movie's cool. <laughs> Science. 
So I wanted to talk about, because like this movie is all about Murdoch, the main character, kind of coming to understand that everything that he knows about his world is wrong and that the truth is actually just something that he could never have conceived of. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk about Plato's allegory of the cave. And this started in, in Dude's book, <laughs> The Republic. Plato? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Plato boy. being Plato. Dude. <laughs> right. And I'm going to take you through the original story because I remember hearing it in like eighth grade and it made a huge impact on me. Mm-hmm. So I apologize if this gets dry at all, but <laughs> go with me. I think it's worth it. I'm with you. So it's an allegory of education and understanding. And it goes basically like this. Imagine a group of prisoners who have been chained since they were children in an underground cave. Mm-hmm. Their hands, their feet, their necks are all chained so that they're unable to move. All they can see in front of them for their entire lives is the back wall of the cave. Some way off, behind and higher up, is a fire burning. And between the fire and the prisoners, there's a road. On the road, sometimes men pass by carrying different objects that are made of stone. These objects are then projected onto the back wall of the cave by the firelight, and so the prisoners can see their shadows. Mm -hmm. So the prisoners come up with names for these shadow objects. They're interpreting the world that they can understand. The prisoners are watching this puppet show their entire lives, which they think is real because that's all they've ever experienced. So let's say one of these prisoners somehow breaks free of the chains. He's forced to turn around and look at the fire. This moment represents enlightenment and recognizing your own ignorance. The light of the fire hurts his eyes and makes him immediately want to turn back around and retreat to the things he could see properly that he already understood. Because the truth is hard to take sometimes. Exactly. After his eyes adjust to the firelight, he sees the objects the men were carrying. They're nothing like the shadows. They're whole objects that have an actual use beyond existing in a shadow form. So reluctantly, with great difficulty, he's forced to progress out of the cave and into eventually into the sunlight, which is a whole different level of understanding. So when he finally sees the sun and the fire and the men carrying the stone objects, he gains a completely different understanding of his world because before all he could see was the reflection of a fire on the back wall and the shadows of the objects it cast. I certainly like the allegory and and to think that it's like from so long ago. Right. You know, something that's so like deeply intuitive. Right, right. Clearly, if you're literally in the dark. Right. And the more you (laughs) uncover and you're like literally and figuratively enlightening yourself. Yeah. And the final piece is that the prisoner starts to feel bad for the people that are still chained back in the cave because he knows that this new understanding of life is so much bigger and better. So he goes back and tries to tell them about the truth of reality, but those prisoners think he's dangerous because he's come back and upset everyone's opinions about things. Mm -hmm. The prisoners don't want to go free because they're comfortable in their own ignorance. Ultimately, about the whole story, Plato says, your philosophical journey may sometimes lead your thinking in directions that society does not support. Fuck yeah. I mean, like, that's truer now more than ever, right? Yeah. Of why people say ignorance is bliss, Mm -hmm, why people mm -hmm. say, you know, it's like you sometimes what's right doesn't go in line with what society deems as right. But a lot of people want to stay comfortable. Exactly. It's uncomfortable to think outside the box. Yeah. I mean, to shed the ignorance you were born into Mm -hmm. is a process where it might burn your eyes and hurt at first. Oh, yeah. But it's not your fault you were born into that ignorance. And it's also your job as a person to learn and move into the light. Right. I mean, I totally understand, like, having been, I've been both the person that's like, I want to stay with my thought process. <laughs> right. Let me turn away from the fire. Exactly. Yeah. I'm like, I'm getting severely triggered right now, uh-huh. and, you know, and 
And then, but you know, once you start uncovering, you're like, I, there's no going back from here, but it mm-hmm, is an uncomfortable mm-hmm. place to be in. The you know? shadows are actually whole things. Right. I know. And then, but then to even like wrap that up with our discussions previously about the conspiracy theories and stuff right, like that, right. where then there's sometimes where you're like, shut up, you. You're just like, <laughs> there's no conspiracy. Like, what do you think you know? You know yeah, what I mean? Because exactly. like, <sighs> look, all I've ever monster. seen is these shadows on the cave. Yeah. It's definitely the world. Yeah, you yeah. coastal elite. <laughs> so they're always like hypnotizing people in this movie. People yeah, there's asleep. a lot of like, like flash yeah. mobs yeah. sleeping. <laughs> so I wanted to look into hypnosis. It's a pretty, pretty complicated concept. And yeah. there's like so many different methodologies. But so the man typically credited with creating hypnosis, albeit in a more primitive form, is Franz Mesmer. He was a doctor in 18th century Vienna. Of, of the mesmerized? Of the mesmerized variety. Yeah, mesmer, mesmerized. So he developed a general theory of disease he called animal magnetism. Have you heard of this? Maybe no. heard of? Okay. It's, it goes to say that every living thing carries within it an internal magnetic force in liquid form. And illness arises when this fluid becomes blocked and can be cured if it can be coaxed to flow again. So to get that shit flowing, Mesmer just simply waved his hands to direct it through his patient's bodies, which is kind of the origin of the melodramatic hand motions of like, and now you are hypnotized. You know, this is pre-pocket watch, TikTok, you're okay. getting very sleepy shit. Right. <laughs> now, Mesmerism became the height of fashion in late 1780s Paris, and he actually actually became the subject of what was essentially the world's first clinical trial because King Louis XVI pulled together this team of the world's top scientists, including Benjamin Franklin, who tested mesmerism and found its capacity to cure was essentially a placebo effect. And he wrote, quote, not a shred of evidence exists for any fluid. The practice is the art of increasing the imagination by degrees. (laughs) Now, of course, we've learned on this show that research in neuroscience is confirming at least parts of these theories of like energy, the mind-body connection and whatnot Mm. so we'll we'll get to that later but hypnotism as we think about it is generally traced back to the 1840s this is when scottish surgeon james braid built on the idea of what he called nervous sleep or specifically and get ready to get some fucking flowery language thrown in your face (laughs) the induction of a habit of abstraction or mental concentration in which as in reverie or spontaneous abstraction the powers of the mind are so much engrossed with a single idea or train of thought as for the nonce to render the individual unconscious of or indifferently conscious to all other ideas impressions or trains of thought now in other words that just means that like every time you fucking read a book you watch a movie you get engrossed in a video game you're entering this natural hypnotic state you're not paying attention to the world around you you're engrossed with this one single idea interesting like yeah there are times where as I start to read a text I'll have to go back in a TV show a couple of you know yeah a minute or so because I just stopped listening to the world around me. Totally. I mean, like you can only focus on so many things at a certain time. Yeah. But now, so like even though hypnosis is derived from the Greek word for sleep, it's not really sleep. Now, one thing to consider is that all hypnosis is actually just self-hypnosis, right? So the hypnotherapist, much like a personal trainer, is just helping the person convince themselves to do something that they're already capable of doing. The American Association of Professional Hypnotherapists explains that it's simply a state of relaxed focus, right? So in fact, each of us kind of enters into this trance-like sleep at least twice a day, once when we're falling asleep and once when we're waking up. So there's Mm. like a foggy sort of consciousness. I certainly get this when it comes to meditation and again, like yoga, when you Mm -hmm. take those moments of silence, you're focusing on a mantra or whatever. Like there's all these kinds of ways that you can experience this. Have you ever been hypnotized by the way? I don't know. I've never been. You know what? 
I think when I was much younger, there was like a kind of hypnotism thing in which was really a form of therapy. Yeah, yeah exactly. That I did attempt. But like, as I understand it, there's like 5% of the population of the world like is incredibly susceptible to hypnotherapy. Right. And I don't think I'm in that 5%. Totally. Yeah, there's a term for people that it's called high hypnotizable people. I think it's a combination of a willingness. It might actually be brain chemistry. Mm. I, I, I don't know exactly for sure because I was looking into a bunch of these studies that also scanned people's brains and people that had certain... I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> now, in terms of just like what this heightened state of relaxation is, like what it consists of, there's there's a like a ton of different methodologies, which is why it's kind of hard to have any solid data on whether or not it works. But usually there's four major characteristics. There's first a highly focused attention on something, whether it's a problem or an issue you want to address. The second is disassociating oneself from the immediate physical environment. This is why they're like, imagine you're on the beach in Hawaii. You're just mm. thinking about this. So, mm. you know, you're just really kind of getting there. You're getting the focus going. And that's when apparently there's supposed to be a heightened sense of suggestibility. This is when the person becomes much more responsive to suggestions given by the hypnotherapist. And then there's this final thing is involuntariness. And this is what's fascinating to me. So that means when like you come out of hypnosis, you feel subjectively like you haven't done anything, but that something has been done to you. So they might suggest like lift your arm. And even though you're physically lifting your arm, it feels like a balloon or some kind of external force is lifting oh. it. So, I mean, I don't know. What, what do you think about that from the onset, does it sound a little bogus to you? Well, not in terms of how much of a mind-body connection we've discussed mm -hmm. with, like, placebo effects and everything like that. Like, I've done certain meditation techniques that were, <laughs> when I first read about them, it was to allow yourself to astral travel. Okay. Which is for your spirit to leave your body and go oh. out and, and experience on the astral plane. Ah, the old out-of-body experience. And, and the way that this described and explained how to do it was effectively a meditation technique that when you're so still and every muscle in your body is fully relaxed, there's a weird experience where you can feel like your arms are above your head when right. they're actually below your head. And you're, you can feel like your arms are spinning around or that you're literally floating. Like, mm -hmm. I've gotten this feeling... The feeling that it is, I think, would be described as though your spirit is lifting out of your body. That's totally. what it kind of feels like. It's like this weird floating sensation. Right. But it's not that. It's this next level of meditation and relaxation. Totally. Isn't that, and isn't it bizarre? Well, yeah, because I, I got to think, like, your body can start taking in phantom feelings of touch and senses yeah. that like well and it definitely like you were saying before it wraps into this the, you know people i feel like you have to mentally be willing to go there you have right. to have an open mind right. like you know if you're it's basically a, a lot of the stuff i read is like if you're trying to be hypnotized it's not going to work for you it's like watching right. a fucking pot boil it's going to take forever well, it's also, you're, you're if you're trying it. not to be hypnotized yeah. it's probably not going to work too yeah right? but it's also like what the fuck i mean you're just <laughs> like, going you go into it being it? a hater <laughs> now okay so i was reading a, a that's what a skeptic's kind of doing <laughs> right <laughs> I'm going to be hypnotized by you, but just to tell you how little it works. Yeah. There was one study in the late 90s in which hypnotized people briefly placed their left hand in either hot water heated to 116 degrees Fahrenheit or room temperature water. Now, some of them had been told that they would be experiencing pain, but that they wouldn't be as bothered by it. So on a scale of one to 10, for example, the pain would normally register at an eight, but they'd feel it as if it were a four. Hmm. And their brains were scanned while they were suggested this, and it showed less activity in their brain, specifically in the anterior cingulate cortex, which is associated with pain processing. So it was an actual electrochemical measurable yeah. thing. So something about that, that 
suggestibility allowed that part of their brain to actually numb itself so that you weren't feeling your hand fucking being boiled, basically. So I mean, yeah. it makes sense because your brain is deciding how many of those pain receptors it's actually going to like take in and yeah. So like so that whole study kind of changed the whole landscape. I was reading about a psychologist who uses hypnosis to help burn victims with like you know how painful it is to remove bandages and mm. clean the wounds and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Like another example of telling people that the vibrant primary colors in a painting are actually just shades of gray. And when their brains were scanned, it showed like less activity in the fusiform regions, which is involved in color processing. Oh, man. You know, so, but like, but then of course, you know, with every positive study you have, there's going to be some negative studies, like studying people who were using hypnosis to quit smoking. Mm -hmm. And it found that maybe it's a better option than nothing at all. But usually people are combining therapies. Right. You know, it's not just hypnosis. You're also like, right. maybe I'm using the patch or I'm chewing well, gum. Also, or like, blah, blah, that's blah. so less specific to be something that we understand how the brain handles addiction right. rather oh, than true. how the brain handles pain. Totally. So it's like a much more complicated process. That's a really, really good point in terms of like the brain chemistry with addiction versus just like telling yourself that the, the pain isn't there. Mind over matter. So I read a little bit about this idea from Carl Jung called the collective unconscious. Freud called this idea archaic remnants, but Freud was much more focused on like the personal unconscious. Mm -hmm. This seems to be a fairly wide ranging and difficult to understand topic that I'm sure I'm going to oversimplify. Sure. But what I glean from it is the idea is the collective unconscious is kind of like the instincts that we all have and share. Mm -hmm. The things that we inherit inherently and not the things that make us individuals. Sure. Yeah. So, Would you now is that separate from like, you know, we watch nature shows and it's like the orangutan does this like these are the things that they're just innately born to do. Is that separate? Yeah, I from, think. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's hard because we're talking about societies. We're talking about right. like civilization as opposed to our just fundamental mammalian <laughs> lizard right, brain. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, but I think that with these kinds of instincts, it is like the fight or flight response. Okay. And it's like certain things about how we interact with each other mm. and and like the sex drive and stuff sure. like that. So the collective unconscious has like a significant impact on the lives of individuals. I saw it written as individuals live out the symbols of the collective unconscious and clothe them in meaning through their own experience. Okay. So I right. suppose that means that like we interpret these instincts that we all share through the lens of our own personal lives. Right. Then it seems to get a lot more specific like people are unknowingly playing a certain role in the collective unconscious. So there are all these archetypes that Jung talks about mm -hmm. that like each are the kind of thing that a person can be. Mm -hmm. We're each playing these various different roles in societal's collective without realizing that we're taking up these spots. You're kind of subconsciously falling into archetypes that... Yeah, yeah. like... It does seem like we all play roles in society and that if there's a gap in the inherent archetypes of a society, usually that gap's filled by somebody. Mm -hmm. Like if the balance can shift, but there's always like a bully that's shouting. There's right. always an, uh, somebody who's quietly trying to do good. If you name an archetype, there's somebody trying to fill that role in the collective unconscious. Right, of course. Because we're I all mean, humanity. Right, of course. And then like, well, you think about archetypes in the realm of comedy, you know, or just like these characters that have existed since right. like ancient, com like comedians have, have done them. Totally. I feel like it, that... <laughs> 
it's in this day and age where it's like so much about like no there's no like there's no stereotypes like everybody's allowed to uh-huh. make whatever future that they want <laughs> right. for themselves and i know i'm saying that like an asshole but like it that is different from just how societies function like right. of course we want to believe in the power of the individual there is power but the collective right power and like the 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 strength of society is a collective thing well to me it's like one of us has to be a doctor but mm-hmm. we don't need everybody to be a doctor right one of us needs to be a baker yeah but no, we don't need everybody to be a baker right and this is taking that and putting it into a more conceptual idea of how we play roles within a larger society totally rather than like liter- the literal job that you have right but kind of like the kind of person that makes up a full society I see what you're saying you know right. there's a Trump out there for you know there's a role <laughs> for that guy right and that role has been outsized in the recent times but like right I'm interested in the like the subconscious part that that plays right because mm-hmm. especially as you know you get out of the cave of ignorance and mm-hmm. whatnot and you're more aware of what has been like basically put on you from mm-hmm. society, like from outside expectations, familial expectations, whatever it is. It's like, is there a way to find this place where you're comfortable sort of, for lack of a better term, being a cog in a wheel? Right. But also feeling like your life is filled with purpose? Like mm-hmm. there's, there's got to be, right? Well, not, because not the everybody cog is can required. Be We've talked about this. <laughs> yeah, not everybody is MJ. We all want to <laughs> be, but we can't be. Yeah. She's the queen bee. So... <laughs> Well, I mean, it's interesting you're saying that because, oh, so we know how the uh, Mr. Hand, the, the the Hand, what's his name? Riff Raff. Riff Raff. He was imprinted <laughs> yeah. with Homeboy's memory. He's right. like, I've got John Murdoch in mind. Right, yeah, because Kiefer gives him all the memories that were supposed to be put into the main character, yeah. but the main character doesn't have any of those memories because exactly. he accidentally, like, brained it away. <laughs> he brained it away. Now, I was trying to find something that was, you know, more directly in line with that, considering we've talked a lot about uh, repressed memories or false memories, yeah. implanted memories mm-hmm. and stuff. So I was like, is it possible to be imprinted with someone else's memories? Mm. And I, I didn't get far into that because I stumbled upon a term called cryptomnesia. You heard of this? No. Now, it is the idea that our ideas are the product of all kinds of existing ideas we've absorbed in the course of being alive, which is mm. a largely unconscious process everything is a remix everything is a fucking remix we've Mm. already known this Mm. we're like okay you know carlos mencia was not the first (laughs) to inadvertently or advertently steal people's shit yeah so basically so this this article that i found it it led by saying how william faulkner famous american writer told a university audience in 1958 quote any experience the writer has ever suffered is going to influence what he does and that is not only what he's read but the music he's heard and the pictures he's seen this might sound pretty no shit sherlock because it's like (laughs) of course there's no new ideas there's it's all permutations but in 1989 Psychologist Alan Brown and uh, Dana Murphy coined the term cryptomnesia after an experiment in which they had groups of four generate words that belong to like particular conceptual categories like sports or musical instruments. And then they were instructed not to use words that had already been used. Then the groups took turns generating words until each participant had contributed four. They were later asked to recall the four words that they had generated for each category and to generate four completely new items so it's basically it's kind of confusing because you're kind of trying to keep track of both what you said while also not using plagiarizing somebody else's idea okay they found that this cryptomnesia occurred in three to nine percent of the cases meaning that people stole shit inadvertently even though they didn't they didn't think or know that they were doing that it found that people rarely reused their own contributions which suggests that people obviously pay attention to their own shit differently Mm -hmm. from other people's shit they were also more likely to inadvertently plagiarize 
responses that immediately preceded their own, which suggest, like the person right before you, you're you're too busy focusing on what your response is going to be. You're not paying attention. I've seen this in mm-hmm. so many improv circles. You're not listening. <laughs> you're not listening to your partner. You just said what I said. This kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah so I, it also was interesting to find that in oral tasks, it was less likely than in written tasks. So it suggests that like when we read and write, somehow it gets like encoded in a different way that makes us feel like our ideas are fucking novel. Well, there's also like, I don't think that you have to have seen somebody else's idea to have come up with the same idea as somebody else. I know. Like I was, I've been getting into Reddit lately, Mm -hmm. which is a fun bastion of insanity. Sure, sure. But like, one of the things is sometimes somebody will post a, a joke mm-hmm. and then all the responses are berating this person for coming up for, with oh. for plagiarizing somebody else's sure. post, which was very successful. And sometimes I'll see the person will like add an edit to their original post and be like, I guess this was actually a joke that was made three months ago. Fuck me for not knowing that. I know. Like, I, I, I thought of this on my own. Totally. I'm sorry. I mean, I think that's a really good point because, like, in later experiments, they were talking about how, you know, when the means with which that they were developing these words became more complicated, it became more common. You know, right. like when they're using boggle right. or they're doing shit against a computer and there's like so many words and ideas being, mm-hmm. you know, tabulated, it's, it's, it's hard to, to keep up. I think Robin Williams even talked about how like he got to a place where he was like, I don't want to go see a comedian because I'm going to be in the back and then something's going to get in my head and I'm not going to mean to, but it'll come out in an improv on stage and yeah. then I'll be like, oh my God, that was somebody else's bit. Right. I mean, it's, but it is so frustrating because especially in the realm of comedy and the things that really draw people together are these like basic human observational pieces of comedy that sure, if you have the exact same syntax and sentence structure and all the shit as the person that Mm -hmm. already said this, that's one thing. But like concept, get the fuck out of here. Wasn't there that whole thing where it's like even Dane Cook and Louis C.K., Dane Cook's like, you're not the only one that ever thought about X, Y, or Z. Right. Cognitive psychologist Ronald T. Kellogg defines cryptomnesia as the belief that a thought is novel when in fact it is a memory. Mm. He writes about this in his book, The Psychology of Writing. And that's why I, f- I found so fascinating between the idea of like something that you hear orally versus something that you read. Yeah. And he was commenting that it's like sentence patterns and cultural beliefs and shit. They're all shared by the same discourse community and they're drawn upon freely without conscious awareness. So the same sort of unconsciousness copying may also occur with like specific sentences, facts, arguments. And so the phenomenon becomes plagiarism when you haven't accepted that your idea is not new. It's just, I don't know. I I, I feel like because it is unconscious, it can't be... When you think of a someone who's plagiarized, you're like, you sick motherfuckers stealing someone else's idea. And I'm like, I don't, it's not that, it's well, not that simple. Copy and pasting into your book that right. you're going to then publish and make money on is one thing. Mm-hmm. But there's another element where it's like, sometimes in conversations with you, what I'll say to you, I'm not thinking about it. But then like, after I say it, I'll realize like, oh, I heard that on Colbert. Totally. Or I heard that point made on some late night show. I've- I feel like it's only when people brazenly present the ideas as though they've never heard it before. You can right. tell the fucking yeah. difference between somebody yeah. who's just like, you know, I uh, noticed that the uh, Bobby like, like, I'm never pretending like I invented that idea. Yeah. yeah. It's actually kind of fun to be like, I was, I read something, yeah. guys. <laughs> now, it's also like, let's consider that this phenomenon is probably not always a bad thing. Like, hello, how do we learn social norms? How do we learn anything? It's by like, incorporating, watch, and, you know, yeah. watch, repeat, how it plays into like advertising mm-hmm. or like, 
political positions and stuff or like psychotherapy there's this classic thing in clinical psychology where a therapist will be trying to like convey something to their their client and then they'll one day just come in and be like you know I have an insight and it's really just what the therapist has been saying this whole time but it's like my father quintessential (laughs) this guy it's like it's not a good idea until it's his idea so you'll just be like you know I'm just gonna just subliminally advertise this idea I know I bring up Steve Jobs all the fucking time but there's a great story about him like like his whole thing was strong opinions loosely held. Mm-hmm, and so yeah. people would come up to him and like present an idea to him that they thought was good for the Mac for like weeks and weeks. And he would berate it for being the worst idea ever. And then one day he'd come in and he'd be like, I got this idea. Right. Do you think you can implement this? And they'd be like, what the? Can Dude, I fucking, I know. you know, that's not your idea, He's man. Just a fucking cryptomnesiac, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and then to to put a button on this, I I read this and I was like, yeah, maybe maybe this is actually okay. If we want to understand how it is that people design skyscrapers or write music or write a New York Times bestseller, I think we need to acknowledge that nothing we design is ever truly novel. Every creative effort contains vestiges of what we have experienced in the past. Right? No, I mean, no one is self-made. You're all built up by the people in the think societies that's, around you. I think you. that's true, but I don't agree with the part of it where it says that nothing is truly novel. Because mm-hmm. it's like, I mean, is nothing it? is, well, nothing is truly, truly novel, right. but your take and your spin on this older idea is novel. Well, I think, well, that's a perspective change. That's, that mm. is not saying, because it's true. Like right. it, nothing is novel. But here's the difference is like, no one needs to bitch about the fact that like, come up with a new movie right. idea, guys. It's <laughs> right, like, right. everything is a permutation of something in the right. past. And it is not to say that your take on this thing is not valuable as well. You know what I mean? Like right. that's what all the talk show hosts and the pundits or whatever, they're mm-hmm. taking this agreed upon set of facts and talking about how they feel about that. Yeah. So, you know, it's, but then also give credit where credit's due, you fuck faces. Moving society forward. (laughs) Yeah. So in the movie, aliens are able to create these massive structures out of their mind. And I wanted to look into like what gives things mass in the universe Mm -hmm. and how could you potentially manipulate that? Mm -hmm. So the Higgs field, which was proven to exist just like two years ago. This is the Higgs boson The Higgs scenario. boson is related to the Higgs okay. field. The Higgs boson is like the particle that's associated with the field. It's, sure. you know. Okay. But the Higgs field is the thing that permeates the entire universe and gives everything mass. Okay, gotcha. So one way to look at mass is as the ultimate battery in nature. Oh. Because E equals MC squared is sometimes called the mass energy equivalence. So anything with mass has an equivalent amount of energy and vice versa. Gotcha. In the earliest moments of the universe, as far as we know, (laughs) all particles were massless and they were traveling at the speed of light. Then the Higgs mechanism or the Higgs field turned on and the particles started interacting with the field and in this process converted their energy into mass. Oh shit, okay. It's been suggested that engineers in the future could learn how to manipulate the Higgs field to turn it on and off. Then we would have developed the ultimate energy source. If we can convert energy into mass and mass into energy, then maybe we could do the kind of cuning, as they call it in the movie. Or, you know, That's the, the movie, the, the buildings, like moving, changing, growing. Shrinking. Yeah, it's when they can like use their brains to move mass around Right. and create things out of nothing. They called it cuning for some reason. Cuning, yeah. 
or maybe we could turn off the Higgs field around a spacecraft and be able to fly around massless at the speed of light and then turn it back on when we arrive at some distant point in space. Oh, that's crazy. Like the ideas of what you could do once you understand how to manipulate the Higgs field, which is a question that like we may never know how to right. manipulate it. But the first step to knowing how to manipulate it is knowing that it exists. Right. The possibilities go beyond just architecture and shit right like exactly. if you're able to travel oh my to God, like it goes far distant yeah <laughs> yeah i mean this movie is taking a very basic idea mm. of what you could do if mm-hmm. you had that ability but then yeah we could make food out of nothing like right. we can there's so well, many things is, that you could do yeah it sure as fuck helps to explain how something can arise out of nothing i.e right. us you know like <laughs> yeah, life yeah, exactly oh uh, wow that's crazy yeah and i can't believe how like just recent all of this knowledge is like totally. the higgs field was introduced conceptually in the 60s and it was proven two years ago that's insane yeah this is part two of the hypnosis dump that mm. i'm gonna take dump, a dump on, on you. us i'm gonna just yeah. take a big old fucking Fat hypno dump. dump on you yeah. now there's this technique known as post-hypnotic amnesia, or PHA. Mm. Hypnotists use this technique to model memory disorders like functional amnesia, which, as we recently learned in the Memento episode, involves sudden memory loss, usually due to some kind of psychological trauma. If you remember, it's also known as disassociative or psychogenic amnesia. Right. So hypnotists produce PHA by suggesting to a hypnotized person that after hypnosis, he will forget particular things until he receives a cancellation, like, now you can remember everything. So Mm. first thing to consider, this is reversible but it's also much more likely to occur with people with high levels of hypnotic ability like we were saying the high hypnotizable people Mm -hmm. so high hypnotizable people with pha usually show impaired explicit memory this is recalling events that were targeted by by the suggestion it also shows a disassociation between implicit and explicit memory so that even though they can't recall the information it continues to influence their behavior thoughts and actions this is sort of we were talking before it's like you might not Remember that you went to piano school, but you know how to how play, to play the, the piano. piano. Yeah. Yeah. So like the the way they were testing this out is, you know, they tested people on the content of a movie and then like the context in which they saw it, like the, the door to the room was closed or whatever. Mm. And so these people that were targeted in the PHA group, they would forget parts of the movie that were targeted, but they never forgot like what the context was. Interesting. So it basically just demonstrates that hypnotic suggestions do influence brain activity, not just behavior and experiments. So So because also like, you know, they were having their brains scanned at the time as well. And you're just seeing all this like crazy action. So even though going back to what Benjamin Franklin was saying, how it's like this, it just it's your imagination being improved by degrees or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's kind of saying that this power of suggestion or imagination, as he calls it, might be being improved by degrees. (laughs) Yeah. And And it might be more effective, like on an actual like real therapeutic level than skeptics had thought like I was reading about this retired pediatrician who could through hypnosis increase the temperature of children's fingertips way beyond what would be achieved merely from relaxation what? and she thinks it's be, it comes from something about this the intense mental imagery that comes in the hypnotic state because like one little boy told her that he was imagining that he was touching the sun and he, you know, so it's like, wow. we just need But more. it was the actual measurement of the temperature of the fingertips His had raised? His actual fingertips were raised. And that must have been for, through, like, a weird blood flow thing that was happening? It's, you know, the intense imagery, like, if somehow that has more power over your body chemistry than rational thought and, like... Well, that, like, I would think, and I don't know, but that... That would make your pain receptors feel the heat, but not actually raise the temperature of your fingertips. You know what I mean? 
I, I think what, well, because it sounds different than, you know, like before we were talking about putting your hand in the water mm-hmm. and deciding that it didn't hurt, but like to emit energy. Right. And that's what like I mean. He, like, I don't know what that is. It feels like, I mean, when you're, I don't know, like think about exercise, right? It's like when you've been exercising in a room, like the whole room is just fucking hot. Like there is something right. about that energy, but it's just crazy to think about harnessing that with your brain. Remember how we were talking about the like Tai Chi and some of the shit from mm-hmm. the one of, mm-hmm. you know, you're standing there and you're moving super slow, but you're just like, your All this coiled sword, energy, yeah. yeah. And then suddenly out of nowhere, you could be like, Cha-cha! and just fucking destroy somebody with the, the power of the sun. It's like, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think, having been and who is someone who kind of still is a skeptic when it comes to these things that don't mm. seem very scientific. Yeah. My brain has definitely been opened and expanded to the power of the mind body connection and definitely. placebos and, you know, Reiki and all, all of these kinds of things where you're like, fuck it's energy. And I guess I don't know right. what I'm talking about. <laughs> so in the movie, <laughs> The main character, Murdoch, has a natural immunity to the alien's mind control powers. Mm-hmm. We've talked a little bit about how, like, a certain percentage of the population is naturally immune to, like, any pandemic that may come about. Uh-huh. But I read about this kind of natural super immunity to viruses that seems to be possible. And there are these kids, these twins, a boy and a girl, whose genes are so naturally immune to viruses that we're studying their DNA. They seem to be immune to the flu, herpes, hepatitis C, and HIV. Wow. The problem is, like, this genetic mutation that allows for this immunity also came with a bunch of unwanted genetic mutations like cerebral atrophy and stuff like that. Oh, shit. But it does offer the possibility that down the road we may understand some genes that we could activate and give extreme immunities without doing the other elements that have debilitated these two. CRISPR! Yeah. Oh, man, that's crazy. You know, we've talked about before, though, that life finds a way. Mm -hmm. And if we have a bunch of people with extreme immunities, it's very likely that we would also create a super virus that could affect the people with the immunities, but then at the same time destroy the people who do not have the super immunity. Oh, man, so some real survival of the fittest. You know what I mean? Yeah. See, because I, I mean, I've read about or I've heard about a lot of that with regard to antibiotics and mm-hmm. how the, you know, the super bugs are being made. But I had not. First of all, I didn't know that there were certain people that were just like immune to HIV. That's new stuff. That's you crazy. Know? Yeah. I don't know for sure that this would lead to super bugs, but it does seem very possible that this could. If it led to bugs that can affect people with the super immunity, then what would happen to the people with normal immunity? Right. Then you get into some fucking X-Men shit where people would be like, yeah, oh, you guys have a monopoly on <laughs> yeah, exactly. living now. <laughs> All right, just to round this all out, this movie takes place in a dark city, so I wanted to <laughs> read about some dark cities out there. Is there are, are there cities out there that live in complete darkness? Yes, there are. <laughs> so I, I wanted to read about Polar Night, which is which is what they call it. Now, this is when none of the sun is visible above the horizon. So let's first talk about Earth's axial tilt. So you can already see how the Earth's axis of rotation is at an angle to the orbital plane, which is the imaginary plane that passes through the sun's equator, and that's... Mm-hmm. 
on which all planets orbit. So another thing to note is that Earth revolves and rotates around the sun at the same time. So the revolution is moving around the sun, that's a year, and rotation is spinning on its axis, so that's a day. Mm -hmm. Now in December, the Earth is tilted in a way that even after one complete rotation, the North Pole will remain dark since it is tilted away from the sun. So then after six months in June, when Earth revolves and reaches the other side of the sun, the North Pole is tilted towards the sun, and then they always receive daylight. That's known as midnight sun or polar day. Mm -hmm. In the southern hemisphere, it's opposite than that. So there are areas in the Antarctic Circle experience polar days when the Northern Hemisphere has polar nights. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the North Pole has six months of daylight and six months of darkness. There's also other phases where you see twilight or it actually just has normal day and night phases. Mm -hmm. In fact, the North Pole remains completely dark only for about 11 weeks. This has to do with the fact that because sunrise and sunset are defined based on the visibility of the sun's upper edge, the polar circle is defined as the latitude where the sun's center, not the upper edge, touches the horizon. Yeah. Yeah, the sun's like, center, not the top the of it. Top. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the other reason is refraction. So that's when the the fact that the light bends when it hits the Earth's atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So the sun might be visible above the horizon just a few minutes before it actually gets there. Mm -hmm. So like a small portion of the sun's disk may be seen. That's why you see the, the twilight. Mm -hmm. So places where this occurs is like Norway, which promotes itself as the land of the midnight sun. Mm -hmm. There's parts of Alaska, Canada, Greenland, Finland, Russia, and Sweden. However, the most dark city for the longest time is Barrow, Alaska, which is 330 miles north of the Arctic Circle. And it is dark from November 18th to January 23rd. So it's 67 days of total darkness. That's crazy. I know. I feel like that's, I know. that's over two months. There's that's a story crazy. I read about a couple of months ago, and I'll have to bring this back up to talk about on the show. But it was of this doctor who was living in polar night uh -huh. and basically had to have emergency surgery and using various tools and video conferencing and stuff like that. This was like in the mid nineties. She had to perform a self surgery. Oh Jesus. Yeah. In the polar night, like being talked through it with, the, I'll, I'll talk about this at some point in the future, yeah. but like the kinds of things that happen at research facilities in oh. the polar night is really fascinating. See, I hadn't even thought about it that way. Cause mm -hmm. I was definitely thinking about it just in terms of like quality of life, like adaptability purposes right, of that. Right. Because you know, you even have seasonal depression. Right. Out no, there. that's like, like a real concern for the people that when they're doing, experiments yeah. in the polar night because I've gotten spoiled as shit out here in LA you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean it's I'm perfect. like every I fucking day I know. <laughs> like no wonder the grunge scene happened in Seattle yeah. so did you have any favorite lines I actually a bunch of fucking favorite lines yeah uh, well i had some that were just kind of like silly like hey cool in your heels or <laughs> i have john murdoch in mind and uh -huh, he said that uh -huh. but the ones that i really liked were are we more than the mere sum of our memories i wrote that down too sure our souls make us different than them that's referring to the hand the slenderman or whatever mm -hmm. and then instincts are irrational did you have any others mm. or was it was it well i really liked that that are we more than just the sum of our memories yeah thing? We've talked about it endlessly about like, are you who you are because of your memories or yeah. is is there something more to humanity than that? And yeah. I don't know the answer to that question. I think it's probably no. Right. I know. I know. <laughs> I feel like it's it's a combination of I mean, just because like your memories inform everything, like even with the yeah. Kryptonesia, it's like they yeah, inform exactly. everything you do. Every, like we are the product of right. the generation that we grew up but in. But is blah, there blah, blah. a collective unconscious yeah. that we're also playing roles in and without I think, realizing? I think there's got to be, but yeah. I think honestly, and, and perhaps it's, perhaps, I mean, it's largely because it's just technology and the, and the flow of information of like, 
we're having a really hard time reconciling that all of us are informed by our own personal experiences and yet trying to have this collective unconscious, yeah, right? Yeah. And then, but what the problem is, is like getting really mad at each other for not knowing exactly what to think at right. the right time. You know it's what like I mean? It's like, you are, you're another part of my brain. Why do you not understand me? Exactly. Like, yeah. you were born 70 years before me. How dare you not feel exactly how I do about this thing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, this was cool. This definitely left me wanting to explore a certain uh, number of topics. I'm sure we'll find it. But like I wanted to look into identity theft, fake identities, mm, like something yeah. cool like that. Mm. Stopping time with the people falling asleep. It got me thinking of like fucking Zach Morris say by the bell, his little like timeouts. So oh, you're like, yeah. hold up, <laughs> let's <laughs> talk about this. But Maybe like, we should do clock stoppers. <laughs> yeah, that might be cool. That'd be a good idea. And then also the, the, the buildings that change and move idea. I know you're talking about like creating mass out of nowhere necessarily, but also, just in the realm of engineering and architecture, if there are buildings that kind of move and do shit like that. Oh, I think there are like, there probably you are, mean, like right? transformer buildings. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Why yeah. not? Especially with the, what are those fucking called? The little uh, nanobots? Nan nanobots. Nanobots, yeah. Fucking nanobot architecture. That would be amazing. That would be really cool. You need a lot of bots. Yeah. But there's enough money out there. There's <laughs> enough money out there, yeah. Well, with that, if you could please rate and review us on iTunes, you can find us at ohthatsathing.com and on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at It's a Joy Amia on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Jeffrey Ekman, and you can find us all here next week doing the movie Wild Wild West. Oh, oh my <laughs> God, we're so sorry. But it'll probably be a great show. It will be. <laughs> Bye. Bye.